right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Pastor Eli James here, and today is going to be a continuation of our series on the enmity, and last week we left off on Genesis 4.1, or we had talked about it briefly, but did not get into great detail. So today is going to be part five of the enmity, talking about the enmity between the seed line of Cain and the seed line of Seth, as is clearly spelled out in Scripture, and the entire Bible is about that. That's the, the number one theme of the Bible, is the enmity between these two seed lines. And it's amazing to me that theologians, Judeo-Christian theologians, have missed this, because it's so important. And if you, and, uh, many people will refer to Genesis 3.15 as the Proto-Evangelion, which means like the first, the first gospel or the first prophecy, and uh, and then ignore it, <laughs> right? So what's this all about? You know, uh, clearly it tells us that there's two seed lines coming from Eve's womb, and one one is at enmity with the other, or they're both at enmity with each other, and there's no doubt about this. Yet the theologians totally ignore this fact. At the same time, the Judeo-Christians, I'm sorry, the rabbis, the rabbis of Judaism ignore this as well. They, they talk about it tangentially in their Talmud and other writings, but then they fail to trace the bloodlines. Now, it's obvious why the Jews do not go into great detail about this subject. That's because they will, they will simply expose themselves for who and what they are because the Edomites are direct descendants of these Canaanites. The Edomites are direct descendants of these Canaanites. And Yahshua tells these Pharisees who had taken over uh, in uh, Judea under Herod that you are of your father the devil. And that's in John 44, 8.44. And he repeats it in Matthew chapter 23, where he accuses the Pharisees of being guilty of uh, all the murderers, all the murders going back to Cain. Hello, 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 hello. And then the tares in uh, Matthew 13. Who are the tares that will be destroyed at the coming of the, the second coming, the judgment day? just before the wedding feast of the Lamb. There's a, you see, the theologians totally ignore the, the abundance of evidence in the Holy Scriptures that we are dealing with two bloodlines, two seed lines. And this is why two seed line identity, or dual seed line Christian identity, DSCI, dual seed line Christian identity, is the most hated doctrine on the face of the earth. And that's why we in identity are the most hated people on the face of the earth, because we expose the Jews for what they really are, while the rest of the world takes it for granted because of their lies, because of their voluminous claims that they are Israel and not Edom, that, uh, that the vast majority of people believe this lie. So only Christian identity, and people, uh, some people who have done independent study have come to the same conclusion, 
and are not within the identity camp, but nevertheless are very close. In fact, uh, uh, there have been many authors writing about what happened, what actually happened in the garden. And they have come to the same conclusion that we have, that Eve bore Cain not from Adam, but from something else. Or even if they don't claim that she didn't bear Cain from Adam, they will still document the two seed lines and come to the logical conclusion that uh, that seed line still exists. Most of those people, however, are afraid to identify the Jews as being that seed line. Okay? So, uh, we referred to Genesis 4.1, but we didn't get into great detail last time, and so we will do that today. So, I, I post uh, a link in the chat room uh, for the Wayback Machine because uh, my site is being rebuilt. It had to be updated and upgraded, and uh, I noticed there were some articles missing so that uh, I'm going to have to basically reconstruct anglo-saxonisrael.com. But uh, praise Yahweh. I don't know if you're familiar with the Wayback Machine, but if you have lost material from, you know, you're looking for a website and can't find it, go to the Wayback Machine. It's called the Internet Archive. And the link I posted in the chat room is from the Wayback Machine. The Wayback Machine has archived my entire site, Anglo-Saxon-Israel. It is a live site. So even though I'm rebuilding my site, and uh, it's actually in the background, and I can't display uh, those articles because I'm converting from one system to another, nevertheless, thankfully, the Wayback Machine has created a, a copy of anglo-saxonisrael.com and it is a live site you can go search you can look at the front page which i'm doing right now and those in the chat room and if you want to go to the wayback machine just type in on the top line www.anglo-saxonisrael.com hit enter and the entire site will come up it's what in fact this is how I used when my site was taken down by the ADL in 2012. So uh, somebody informed me of the Wayback Machine, and I was able to save most of my work from the Wayback Machine. That uh, it took me six months to rebuild the site when when uh, ADL put pressure on PowWeb to cancel my site. So it. Uh, it's really fortunate that the Wayback Machine exists because if your site is taken down, the first thing you should do is check the Wayback Machine to see if they have saved any of your material. So this is a tremendous resource on the Internet. So what I'm going to do here is write the front page. The very front page is the article, Who is Gog? Who is Gog? And... It has a picture of Adam and Eve standing <laughs> standing by the tree. But the, the image of the tree is it's not a tree. It's a skeleton. So it's a humanoid. It's a, it's a picture of a humanoid, a dead humanoid. So obviously the angels are half dead. 
So uh, the, the walking dead, the living dead, as it were, say uh, macabre representation of the tree of knowledge and death. Well, the tree of knowledge are good and evil is how the, how the Bible presents it. And there's no literal tree that knows, to, that knows good and evil, not a tree made of wood, but the word tree in Hebrew often simply re- represents genomes, uh, i.e. seed lines, bloodlines, genealogies, etc., etc. And of course, there is no apple. <laughs> there is no apple in Genesis. Sorry, Jews. Sorry, Judeo-Christians. There is no apple in Genesis. Stop purveying that myth. And that's what we're having to deal with, folks. Mythology presented in the name in the name of the Bible. It's crazy stuff. So, all right, so I'm uh, at uh, the Internet Archive here, and uh, I'll just read the introduction here. Genesis 2 tells about the formation of Adam. Formation, not creation. Formation is Yatsar, not Bara. Bara is creation. Adam was a special creation by God. He was supposed to take care of the garden and use it as a base from which to assume dominion of the planet. However, he and Eve partook of the forbidden fruit of the non-white races. Yes, Eve was beguiled by the serpent, Nachash, whisperer, beguiler, seducer, in the garden, Genesis 3.6, and bore a child, Cain, who was not parented by Adam, but by the quote-unquote serpent. This serpent was either a fallen angel or a hominid of the two-legged beasts of Genesis 1, 2, 3. The idea that there were two-legged beasts is confirmed by a thorough scriptural passage, search, which tells of beasts who have hands and feet, have the capacity of speech, and are able to worship God. Jonah 3, 8 is a good example. Now, obviously, the King James translators overlooked such passages because you know they were you know doing a translation commissioned by King James and King James was very uh, desperate to get an Anglican uh, an official that is authorized version of the Anglican church out there to compete against the Geneva Bible especially so they were taking their time to really flesh out the meanings of the Hebrew words. I would say they actually uh, simply borrowed stuff from the Geneva Bible and then doctored it according to King James' wishes. I'm sure that's what was going on there. And, uh, you know, and, and King James gave a complete set of instructions, which many of the 1611 King James Bibles still contain, he gave a complete set of instructions to the translation committee. This is how I want you to translate it. Okay? And that's why we have the word church in the King James instead of congregation or ecclesia. So people, so he can think, oh, okay, oh, it means the, the, the Anglican church. Or Catholics want to say it means the Catholic church. No, it doesn't. It means congregations of Israel. That's what it means, folks. It means congregation of Israel. And that's the only meaning it has. So this is how the translators doctor the text. 
you know, doctor of theology, <laughs> doctoring the text. Okay, so first heading. Although the Bible says at Genesis 4.1 that Adam knew his wife and she conceived the bear Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And we're going to go into detail, detailed study of Genesis 4.1 today. It might take the whole show because that, that's how important this verse is. So let me repeat it again, that Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. The fact is that this is a problematic translation of the Hebrew, and it is also probable that the original Hebrew text was changed in order to hide the fact that Eve had committed adultery with the serpent. Now we have the King James and most translations of the Bible, of the Old Testament, are from the Masoretic text. The Masoretic text is a Jewish version of the Hebrew Old Testament. And there's no telling how much doctoring the rabbis did in the Masoretic text. The Masoretic text is much older than, I mean, I'm sorry, much younger than the Septuagint. The Septuagint Greek text has been available since approximately 250 BC, and it was the text that was employed by the apostles, by Paul, by Yahshua Messiah, and all of the non-Jewish people that walked the earth in the days of Christ. It was the Pharisees, the Edomite Pharisees, who had possession of the Hebrew scriptures because, why? Because Herod took control of those records. In fact, he destroyed. Herod actually destroyed the genealogical records of the Israelites because he was not an Israelite. And he didn't want those records available for people to prove, hey, where's Herod? Where's Herod in the line of descent? So he knew that could be used against him, so he destroyed those records. So you can see how the Jews doctor all of history and the Hebrew scriptures in order to hide themselves, hide their true identity from the people of the world. So we have done research, we in identity have done the research and proved that the Jews are Edomites, the original Jews are Edomites, actually coming from also from Babylon, from the region of Sephar. That's where the Jews get the Sephardic from. The Sephardic Jews are Babylonian Canaanites from the region of Sephar, which was a, a suburb of Babylon. And of course, the, the scriptures tell us, and Josephus goes into great detail, about how the Pharisees imported high priests and other priests and money changers from Babylon. Because the Israelites did not have a, a banking system. They used gold and silver. They did not have an established money lending system as the Edomites did. So you can tell right away when Yahshua uh, whipped those moneylenders out of the temple, he was whipping Edomites and Babylonian Canaanites out of the temple because it was forbidden for the Israelites to have a banking system and lend money at usury. Although the Israelites did lend money to each other, 
at usury, which was a violation of Yahweh's law, especially if they were expecting interest. The, the Israelites were allowed to lend to each other and borrow from each other, but they were not allowed to charge interest of any kind, whether monetary or uh, in other goods. For example, if you loaned your friend two bushels of wheat, you were not to tell him, okay, when it comes time to repay me, I expect two bushels and a half. Yahweh says you cannot do that. That is a violation of Yahweh's law. And it's, it's amazing to me that the Judeo-Christians excuse the Jews when they practice usury day in and day out. And the Judeo-Christians, well, well, they're the old covenant uh, Israelites. Oh, yeah? Well, then why don't they obey Yahweh's laws? It, it never seems to occur to a Judeo-Christian to ask such a question. So let's continue here. That So it's, it's really evident that the Masoretic text has doctored the, the, the original Hebrew and therefore an, an important verse like Genesis 4.1 would have to be suspicious. But even disregarding whether or not it is suspicious, let's look at Genesis 4.1 as it appears in the King James Version and let's take it apart. Okay, so, uh, well, here's another, I, 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 I cite another example. This is from the Mechan Mamre, a Jewish translation, and it puts it this way. And the man knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, quote, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Okay, the Jews don't use Yahweh. The Jews do not use Yahweh. Don't, don't make the mistake of believing that the Jews address Yahweh as Yahweh. No, it's the Jews who created this, let's call it superstition, that you're not allowed to use the name of Yahweh. Well, they don't want us to use the name of Yahweh, the true Israelites, because they don't want us to pray to Yahweh. They want us to pray to Baal. Of course, Christians who, when they pray to God and not knowing that his real name is Yahweh, they're obviously not praying to Baal. But this is where the word comes. The Hebrew word Baal is translated as Lord. And since it's in all caps, it's a substitute for Yahweh, for the Tetragrammaton. So this is the Jewish version, and it's obvious that the, the Jewish version uses L-O-R-D as well instead of Yahweh. Now here's proof that the Jews don't use Yahweh in their scriptures. And it's the Judeo-Christians who followed this Jewish practice. It comes from the Jews. Continuing. To understand the meaning of this passage, it must first be understood that Eve is being quoted. It is Eve's reaction to seeing Cain. This is not Yahweh stating that Eve bore Cain from him as some anti-seedliners falsely maintain. Okay, that verse is not stating that Yahweh said this. It's clearly Eve that's being quoted. In fact, the Mechan Mamre version actually puts quotation marks around her statement, saying, quote, 
I have gotten a man from the help of the Lord, unquote. So this is a better translation because it puts the quotation marks in the correct place. But of course, they still uh, maintain that uh, they still do not use the name of Yahweh. And they still maintain that there's that you cannot uh, derive two seed lines from this. Okay, because they don't want to trace the seed line of Cain down to themselves. So, the Jewish translation actually suggests this, but it is a false translation, as we will see. Anti-seed liners also assume that the word from in this passage means came from, or with the help of, Yahweh. But there are at least three different Hebrew words translated as from, and there are subtle differences among them. So this is how careful you have to be in analyzing Scripture. There are times where you actually have to you actually have to look at the prepositions, the articles, the prepositions, articles, uh, suffixes, prefixes to get this right, folks. Yes, spoiler alert, yes. And Yahweh repeatedly commands his people to call on his name. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. So I I, I understand some people are having problems with the sound. Um, If that's the case, just refresh. Uh, It appears that the people in the chat room are having uh, no difficulty. So, but if you are, just refresh and that that will. Sometimes I, I log in and it's playing the wrong uh, wrong program, and uh, you have to refresh sometimes to bring it up to date, up to the minute, up to the second. All right, let's continue here. But there are at least three different Hebrew words translated as from, and there are subtle differences among them. The word which is translated as from in Genesis 4.1 is the Hebrew 854F, E-T-H, meaning probably... I'm sorry, properly, nearness, used only as a preposition or adverb. Near. Okay? So you cannot translate this as as the Jews do, and as the King, uh, although the King James is not as bad as the Mechan Mamre, the Jewish translation. Because the word from doesn't necessarily imply that Yahweh fathered Cain, okay? But the Jewish translation is with the help of. I have gotten a a man with the help of the Lord, says the Jewish translation. So the Jewish translation wants to say that Yahweh was involved in impregnating Eve with Cain. That's exactly what they mean. But the word eth doesn't mean with the help of. It means simply nearness. Big difference between being near and impregnating. Uh, Don't you think? (laughs) Don't you think? Okay. So, there's a big difference between between standing next to somebody or being near that person and 
having sexual relations with that person, whether it be miraculous or not. Okay, so properly nearness used only as a preposition or adverb, near, N-E-A-R. Hence, generally with, by, at, among, etc. Against, among, before, by, for, from, in, to, out, out of, with, often with another preposition prefixed. So, so we have a very clear understanding that the Hebrew preposition F does not mean what the Jews claim it means. From is not a bad translation, but the real meaning is nearness. Okay, so by, even by would be a bad translation because it would say by, she, she was impregnated by Yahweh, all right? So, uh, but this shows you that even the prepositions have to be dealt with. You cannot ignore the prepositions. Okay, the Hebrew preposition eth does not convey the sense of derived from, as it can also be translated as against, among, before, even nearby. So probably the best translation would be uh, that Yahweh was nearby, certainly not with the help of. Because Yahweh saw everything that was happening, all right? Just as he saw Cain slaying Abel. Because it is a preposition that has several meanings, but the essential meaning is nearness, not derived from or begotten with. If translated as, quote, I have gotten a man, and by the way, it doesn't say Adam here. The word man is translated from the word ish, which simply means male, not Adam, meaning Adamite. So here's another big, big problem with Genesis 4.1 because the King James translators translated about 10 different words as man, not make not keeping the Hebrew distinctions among them. So Adamite is translated as man. Adam is translated as man. Ish is translated as man. Enosh is translated as man and many others. So unless you actually do a word study and find out which word is being used in the Hebrew, you have no idea. And this is where they get this nonsense that all men are created equal. <laughs> okay. All right. If translated as, quote, I have gotten a man, ish, meaning male, not Adam, meaning Adamite, against the Lord, you could translate it that way too. But the word against, uh, it's not commonly used in this. So against, so in the sense of over against, that uh, you're standing opposite from me opposite from me over against is the more common usage and so it doesn't necessarily mean that they're antagonistic to each other although it certainly could mean that right from our understanding could mean that but it means more over against and and it's still another version of nearby then we have a completely different animal don't we if translated the verse uh oh if translated if they translated the verse with among or before 
It only means that cave bore Cain in the presence of Yahweh. That's all it means with the preposition F. That's all it's saying. That Yahweh did not have anything to do with that. He did not perform any act that got Eve pregnant by Cain, or by Nachash. So this is, so the assumptions that you can make simply from prepositions, adverbs, etc., are amazing. So you really have to study this carefully, and you cannot gloss it over. And we'll find out, because I'm going to reference Clem- Clifton Emheiser's article on the subject, and to show that it is, in fact, a gloss, that the uh, translators have glossed over this verse. But that's by Jewish design. There's no doubt in my mind that the Jews doctored the text and probably deleted a word or two to so that they could that they could translate it in this fashion. But we'll get into that because the Clifton Emmerheiser cites different uh, translations besides the King James, which actually state very clearly that the translators had information that's missing in the Masoretic text. Okay. All right. The, the bottom line is Eve is not saying that Yahweh is the father of Cain. Absolutely not. Nor is Yahweh saying this either. In Genesis 2.22, where it says, which God had taken from Adam, the Hebrew 44.80 word is min, mini, mine, meaning properly a part of, hence prepositionally, from or out of in many senses, above, after, among, at, because of, by reason, etc., etc. But the basic meaning is out of. Okay, now if min had been in in place of F, then you're a little closer to the assertion of the, the Jewish translation. But that's not the preposition that's being used. So they're taking defini- the definition of a different uh, preposition slash adverb and using that for their translation. The Hebrew word min more strongly suggests out of, or with, or derived from. But that's not the word that's there, folks. The word is eth. The rib was taken out of Adam and used to, quote-unquote, make Eve. The rib, Yahweh used Adam's DNA to form a female with the same DNA. Thus, they are man and wife. They they were made for each other. (laughs) The rib was definitely derived from Adam as it was an actual part of his body. However, there's even a problem with the word rib because the word Hebrew word actually means side. Side. And in my opinion, Yahweh used the DNA from... It could have been from a rib, or could, you know, your bone marrow is where your blood is manufactured, and the ribs make the mo- most blood, and your most of your DNA. So we're talking about DNA, and that uh, at, that Eve had to have exactly the same DNA. Of course, the female, you know, she had to have X chromosome, and Adam had a Y chromosome, and that's uh, other than that, I don't see any real difference between the uh, the two genders. But the X and Y, and Yahweh had to adapt Eve's body to this DNA, this divine DNA, 
with which uh, he formed Adam. Okay. Next, another Hebrew word translated as from is Bain, B-E-Y-N-H-996, meaning sometimes in the plural masculine or feminine, properly the constructively contracted form of an otherwise unused pronoun, meaning a distinction, but used only as a preposition, as in between, also as a conjunction, either, or, among, asunder, within, etc. Okay, so in Genesis 1-7, it is used to divide the firmament from the waters of the earth. Thus, this usage of the word from is to distinguish one thing from something else. That's clearly not what the rabbis intend, (laughs) right? They want Eve to derive Cain from Yahweh, but the verse says no such thing. Given these three different Hebrew words, I would say that only men conveys the sense of begotten from, and that is not the word used in Genesis 4.1, which is eth. In this verse, eth could easily, just as easily mean before, as in setting before, not in a chronological time, but in setting before you, among, as in the midst of, or even against, as in opposite to, or next to. So, we see that all the Genesis 1, the preposition tells us, is nearness. doesn't say anything more than that. And we also know that the word translated as man comes from ish. So, that's a great problem, too. Only the Hebrew word men suggests begotten of or begotten with, and that is not the word used here. I'm going to have to click continued here, and hopefully it comes up because this is uh, from the Wayback Machine. <laughs> the wheel is turning. I just want to finish the introduction here and see if it comes up. All right, hold on. Yeah, okay, very good. It looks like it's uh, coming up. Again, this is the version from the Wayback Machine because my site is being rebuilt and it would be extremely difficult for me to access the, the old Drupal text while I'm rebuilding. So in, in any case, uh, let's see, I'm trying to find... Okay, furthermore, Eve refers to Cain as an ish, which merely means a male of any species. A male of any species, including animals. If Cain had resembled Adam, she would have referred to Cain as an Adam, which she did not. A verse as important as Genesis 4.1 must be thoroughly diagnosed before jumping to any conclusions. My conclusion is that Genesis 4.1 does for at least three reasons given above not declare that Eve got Cain by the intervention of or through, by or with Yahweh. Okay, Yahweh had nothing to do with that. It was Nahash that did that. That is reading too much into the verse. In my opinion, Eve is actually expressing surprise at what had just come out of her. Remember Rosemary's Baby? Remember that movie? And she gave birth to a little devil? To her surprise, 
The tip-off is the fact that she refers to Cain as an ish instead of an Adam, Adam, generically. Because there's a generic Adam, which is to show blood in the face, meaning a, a person of the white race, and the capitalized Adam, meaning the man, Adam. And since only Adamites show blood in the face, Eve would, is expressing surprise. Whoa, why doesn't this baby look like Adam? <laughs> why doesn't this baby look like my husband? And then we see in Genesis 5, where it says of Seth, that he bore the image of his father, Adam. We are never told that about Cain. Okay? You got to do a little bit of detective work here, folks. And look at the actual meanings of the Hebrew words to get this right. Everybody else glosses it over. And the Jews gloss it over for obvious reasons. They don't want to be fingered, identified as the seed line of Cain. That's the last thing they want anybody to do. That's why they have doctored the Hebrew in so many different ways. Brother Abair has just gotten through with a series on the word Gentile and how they use the word Gentile to falsely translate the Bible. And even the word Jew, you translate the word Jew from Judah, which is a specific race of people, and Judean, which is a motley group of people living in Jerusalem in those days. The two diametrically opposed sources translated as the same word. That's ridiculous. It's like translating cowboys and Indians as cowboys. You're not making the distinction. You know, the Indians are not the same as the cowboys, but you're using the word cowboy to translate the word Indian too. This is the confusion that the Jews deliberately create. Okay, so continuing. Eve refers to Cain as an ish, not as an Adam, which she should would have certainly done had her child at that point been an Adamite. Okay? Compare Genesis 4.1 with Genesis 5.3, where it specifically states that Seth was begotten in the likeness of Adam. No such proclamation is made about Cain. Also, Genesis 3.16 clearly implies that Eve had already conceived, but not by Adam until Genesis 4.1. Genesis 3.16 is where her conception is cursed with sorrow, and her childbearing is cursed with pain. All of this implies that sinful conception had occurred before Genesis 4.1. Only then did she become pregnant by Adam, and a dual pregnancy resulted, a pregnancy by two different fathers, otherwise known as heteropaternal superfecundation, which I go into great detail in other areas, in other articles. So, what we're seeing here is that Depending on how who the translator is and what the translator's intentions are, we can see it is easy to doctor this. <laughs> Spoiler alert says reminder that Rosemary's Baby was written by a Jew, and I think the movie was directed by a Jew too. So, but uh, oh, what was it? And and uh, and the woman who played the role, uh, she was. Uh, uh, Married to a Jew. <laughs> so you see, the Jews are all over the place here. All over the place. 
Okay, so let's continue. Here's, okay, now uh, let me quickly, because I do mention Stephen Anderson, while he was still in prison, uh, you know, he, uh, he had this to say, and he wrote me back about this, and this is basically how he responded. Uh, uh, let, me, let me just quote it here. Here is what Hebrew expert Stephen Anderson has to say about this verse, quote, 853F and 4.1 means by or with. The word Yahweh is the problem. The verse is corrupted, and the Septuagint, the LXX, and Syriac both support 7706 Shaddai as the correct word. This would say, I have acquired a man that is not 120, that is Ish. I have acquired an Ish, if it were Adam's child, with the Almighty One, or Mighty One. doesn't necessarily mean Almighty One. I think it has to say El Shaddai. The mighty one, the mighty, and that could that would be translated as Almighty One, but uh, I have to I have to call Pastor Steve and, and find out because he's still at the nursing home, and see if that uh, is correct. Or I, I could uh, check the uh, translators online as well. So instead of Yahweh, it should be Shaddai, El Shaddai. The Nachash deceived and seduced her. And she was so naive she believed him. He probably handed her some devilish line of bull <laughs> to get her to lay with him. So pretending to be what he was not is quite feasible. Okay, so he says that from the Septuagint and the Syriac, the original word there is Shaddai, not Yahweh. So here we see, now this is a verse that we would expect the Jews to tamper with. We would expect the Jews to tamper with this verse because it is so important. El Shaddai means mighty Lord in Hebrew. If both the Septuagint and the Syriac support the fact that Eve was referring to El Shaddai and not Yahweh, it would mean that Nahash the serpent was trying to impress her with his rank. Well, he was, what, the second in command, the fallen angel, Lucifer? Although I think it was not Lucifer himself, it was one of his lieutenants. The uh, book of Jasher, no, book of Enoch, says it was Gadriel that was sent by Lucifer to seduce Eve. There is no doubt that Eve was seduced by a lesser being who actually contradicted Yahweh's instructions to Adam and Eve that they should not eat of the forbidden fruit, Genesis 2, 16, 17. Since Eve understood that she had disobeyed Yahweh's commandment, there is no way she could have blamed Yahweh for the birth of Cain. Although, as, as Steve correctly points out, she was still naive, both mentally and probably sexually. And certainly when the act had taken place, was still naive in that sense. Mr. Anderson's observation supports the contention that the KJV translation of Genesis 4.1 is corrupt. You cannot blame the lawgiver for your own disobedience to his law. Okay, Yahweh told Adam and Eve, do not touch. Do not touch that tree in the midst of the garden that is the knowledge of good and evil. No literal tree has knowledge of good and evil. Wood does not have such knowledge. So it's not a wood tree. It's a genome. 
that's being referred to. And there's all kinds of figurative language being used in the Hebrew. Remember the Hebrew was composed of about 8,000 words. That's a very small vocabulary. So they used parenthetic expressions, they used idioms, they used metaphors, etc., etc. And so you just have to do your research as to determine, is this a metaphorical use of the word tree? But even there, the word tree in the Hebrew does mean genomes. It means bloodlines. So it doesn't always mean wood. If Moses or Eve had intended to state that Cain was begotten of Yahweh, the word used would have been yalad, meaning, quote, that's Hebrew H3205, meaning, quote, a primitive root to bear young, to cause to beget, medically to act as midwife, specifically to show lineage, bear, beget, birth, born, etc., etc., etc. I wonder if that's where they get the word yada from, because it seems to be a contraction of yalad. There is no doubt that Eve begat Abel from Adam. But given her peculiar statement about Cain, there is plenty of doubt as to who begat Cain. Why didn't she make a similar exclamation about Abel? (laughs) Oh, oh, Abel, oh, you look fine. Could it be that Abel looked like Adam and Cain looked like a mulatto? Abel was probably what she was expecting her child, her offspring to look like. Both the Aramaic Targums from the Hebrew Tirgum, meaning translation, of the Judahites, the Aramaic Targums came back with the Judahites from the Babylonian captivity, and the commentaries of the early church fathers of Christendom taught that Eve's sin was fornication. It had nothing to do with an apple. Indeed, there is no apple mentioned in Genesis. The apple is only a fanciful device used by Bible interpreters to convey their theory. Why would Adam and Eve be punished for their sin of eating an apple by having to wear loincloths or fig leaves to cover their genital areas if their sin was one of mere eating of fruit? Uh, shouldn't the punishment fit the crime? Wouldn't they rather have to cover their mouths, not their genitals? Haven't we been rather naive in talking about apples? The tree that they were forbidden to partake of was the tree of the genetic race mixing. They disobeyed this law. Literal trees cannot transmit any knowledge of good and evil to the consumers of its fruit. But family trees of non-atomites can certainly produce hybrid offspring which know both good and evil. Before their fall, Adam and Eve knew only good, because they were naked and unashamed. Genesis 2.25 The Targum of Pseudo-Jonathan is a Judahite, non-Jewish commentary, that is, commentary slash translation, and it was done for the purpose of educating the returning Judahites from Babylon, because they had stopped using Hebrew, and adopted Aramaic as their spoken language. It states, and I quote, And Adam knew that his wife Eve had conceived from Samael the angel. Hello? It doesn't say Yahweh. (laughs) It says Samael the angel. And she became pregnant and bore Cain. And he was like those on high. 
don't you want to be like Mike? Eve, don't you want to be like, don't, don't, don't you want to have children that look like me and not like those below? So obviously a two-legged beast or fallen angel like Gadriel would have appeared. He might have even had some residual glow from being, you know, a half, half angel, half hybrid. Well, sorry half humanoid, half angel, half humanoid. And uh, so this might have given Eve the idea, well, maybe this guy is you know, an, an angelic being. Maybe Yahweh wants me to have sex with this angelic being. Or he could have you know, plied her with uh, some kind of drug like Soma. In the ancient world, Soma was the, uh, how do you, what's the term? You know, you, you give a drug uh, to uh, somebody you want to seduce to get them sexually aroused. You know, a Mickey. Soma was the drug used to slip a person a Mickey in those days. That's a possibility too. The account is so brief that we don't know exactly how this was accomplished, but we do know it was accomplished. So let me repeat, repeat this. This is how the Judahites, not Jews, folks, the Judahites of the Babylonian return when they got back to Jerusalem and in their congregations, in their ecclesia, in their synagogues, which is not a building. The synagogue is a reference to the assembly of Israelites gathered together. Of course, it was often done in the temple. It was often done outside. So the word synagogue is not a reference to a building. It's a reference to the congregation. And Adam knew that his wife Eve had conceived from Samuel the angel, and she became pregnant and bore Cain. So this is how the returning Judahites translated the verse for the Israelites of the day. And he was like those on high, and not like those below. And she said, I have gotten a man from the angel of the Lord. So, according to the Aramaic Targum, Eve stated that she had assumed that she had gotten a man, that is an ish, from the, and an angel, not from Yahweh. Big difference here, folks. Huge difference. Yeah, aphrodisiac. Thank you. <laughs> aphrodisiac. <laughs> it's been so long since I've tried to... No, I'm not going there. <laughs> We're having too much fun today, folks. But this is wonderful to understand what the Bible is really teaching us and how the Jews and Judeos and others have endeavored so with such great, great efforts at deception to change the scriptures. This is wonderful to know that there's an alternative which is better translation than what they have provided. Okay, continuing. These two translations, oh, wait a minute, uh, hold on. Uh, okay, certainly Eve would not have known the difference between a good angel and a fallen angel. Maybe, maybe not. But whether she did, uh, she was overcome. You know what, what happens when you're being seduced? I don't know, this never happened to me. <laughs> so I wouldn't know. <laughs> 
at what point do, do you drop your guard and submit to the seduction? Uh, since that's never since that's never happened to me, I guess I've been deprived that uh, I wouldn't know at what point you let your guard down and submit to the seduction. We know from Genesis 6 that the angels who left their first estate embodied as quote-unquote men and took quote-unquote wives, that is, they raped the daughters of Adam, because the word man there comes from Adam. No one disputes this interpretation of Genesis 6. If it happened in Genesis 6, why not in Genesis 3? The Targums suggest that this is exactly what took place. The Palestinian Targum states, quote, And Adam knew his wife Eve, who had desired the angel, and she conceived and bare Cain, and she said, I have acquired a man, the angel of the Lord. Quite a different translation from what you see in your King James translation, isn't it? These two translations suggest that the Aramaic-speaking scribes of the post-captivity house of Judah, they were Judahites, not Jews, regarded Genesis 4.1 as containing more information that the KJV translation contains. Did the Jewish Masoretes tamper with the Hebrew text? We know that the Masoretic text is a redacted version of the Old Testament as it contains shorter versions of the OT books than the Septuagint version, the LXX. But plus many shortened passages, the LXX is the version that was used by the apostles and by Jesus himself. So you have to remember that the Masoretic text did not appear until about a thousand years later. It took that long for the rabbis to doctor the original Hebrew. Many scholars have stated that the Masoretic text was deliberately redacted from the existing Hebrew text by the rabbis as a means of counteracting the influence of the Septuagint among the Christians. We are at a disadvantage because the MT is the only surviving Hebrew version, except for scraps. Actually, the I think the entire book of Isaiah was preserved in uh, by the Essenes at Qumran. And uh, I have never looked at that translation when, Steve's get, when Steve gets back to full health, maybe he can look at that translation and, and see how it compares with the Masoretic text. And if it's different, if there are words that are left out of the Masoretic text, then we will have proof positive because that entire book is preserved by the Essenes. We will have proof positive that the Masoretic text has been doctored or maybe rabbied, <laughs> rabbied, plus many shortened passages. All right, so, but the vast majority of scholars give supremacy to the Septuagint, which contains the Apocrypha as well, and so does the original King James Version. So we have, we can see now that Judeo-Christian scholarship on the subject of what is the best translation to use is severely lacking because they simply assume that the Masoretic text is accurate. And then they, if they have a problem with translation, they'll consult a rabbi instead of consulting the Septuagint. 
From the preface and introduction to the Septuagint itself, written by Sir Lancelot C. L. Brenton in 1851, quote, The Septuagint from the Latin Septuaginta, meaning 70, and frequently referred to by the Roman numerals LXX, is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The name derives from the tradition that it was made by 70 or 72 Judahite scholars, there were no Jews involved, these were Judahites, at Alexandria, Egypt, during the reign of Ptolemy Philadelphus, who reigned from 285 to 247 BC. So this translation was given to Ptolemy Philadelphus sometime around 250 BC, is about as near as we can determine. The earliest version of the Old Testament scriptures, which is extant, or of which we possess any certain knowledge, is the translation executed at Alexandria in the 3rd century before the Christian era. Okay, that's the earliest version. And it is a Greek version translated from the Hebrew by these Judahite, not Jewish, scribes. The veneration with which the Jews are the non, by which he means the non-Edomite Judahites of Judea, had treated this version as is shown in the case of Philo and Josephus, neither whom are Jews, gave place to a very contrary feeling when they, the Edomite Jews, <laughs> the Pharisees, found out how it could be used against them in argument. Hence, they decried the version. The Jews hate the Septuagint. Why? Because it contradicts the Masoretic and sought to deprive it of all authority. As the Gentile Christians were, see, even, even Brenton is flummoxed by these terms, Jew and Gentile. As the Gentile Christians were generally unacquainted with Hebrew, they were unable to mean the Jews, meet the Jews on the ground which they now took. And as the Gentile Christians fully embraced its authority and inspiration, they necessarily... now, But not just the, the exiled Israelites, but the Judahites themselves, because all the apostles were of the house of Judah. Yahshua himself was of the house of a uh, uh, tribe of Judah. The other apostles were of the tribe of Benjamin. Nevertheless, the house of Judah. And they rejected the Jewish version. And they did not have access anymore to the Hebrew scriptures, which were secreted away by Herod, and whatever was left of it was used by the Jews to create their Masoretic text. So the Judahites, the true, the true Christian, that is the Anglo-Saxon Christians, or in this day the Angles weren't involved, it's the Saxons, in Isaac shall thy seed be called, the Saxon Christians fully embraced its authority and inspiration. They necessarily regarded deni the denial on the part of the Jews of its accuracy as little less than blasphemy. Amen! It is blasphemy and as proof of their blindness. Of course, Brenton is not aware of the bloodlines, and so he has no idea that these Jews are Edomites of the evil bloodline. He has no idea of that. He assumes that they're, quote-unquote, Judah. So this is the level of you know, scholarship and, de and deception that we have to deal with. 
that we have to deal with. <laughs> Swamp Fox says, yeah, after the Spanish fly, Cosby cocktail. Thank you. Right. Okay. Yeah, I, I have never done that. So that, that's why the, the, the word is not part of my vocabulary. <laughs> but I've read about it, <laughs> right? I'm sure this happens. What's that? Uh, what's that song? About there's there's a heartache tonight. <laughs> there's gonna be a, an aphrodisiac tonight going on in all the bars across the world. How many how many aphrodisiacs? How many Spanish flies are gonna be served up tonight? Uh, I shudder to think. Let's go back. All right. This this is good stuff, folks. This is really good stuff. You're getting you're getting the nitty gritty from real Bible scholarship and not Judeo or Jewish so-called scholarship. Uh, distortionism is the word I like to use. It's distortionism. It's not scholarship. In other words, the Edomite Pharisees rejected the Septuagint because it was the preferred text of the Christians and because the Septuagint was being used to prove that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. This was intolerable for the Jewish Pharisees, whose main purpose for existence was to deny the Messiah and to destroy this up-and-coming Christianity. From the introduction of the book called Grammar of the Septuagint Greek by Frederick C. Conybeer, written... I'm butchering, it sounds like a a Celtic or Scottish name, written in 1905, quote, The word of origin might enlighten the learned, but it did not affect the unique position held in the church by the Septuagint ever since it was taken over by the Hellenistic Jews. We are familiar with the constant appeal made by the writers of the New Testament to quote scripture. An appeal couched in such word as, quote, it is written, or as the scripture saith. In the great majority of cases, the scripture thus appealed to is undoubtedly the Septuagint. Seldom, if ever, is it the Hebrew original. Why? Because they didn't have the Hebrew original. The Jews stole it. We have seen how, even before the Christian era, the Septuagint had acquired for itself the position of an inspired book. Now we see today all these Judeo-Christian I want to be kind (laughs) pastors pulpit masters these Judeo-Christian pulpit masters who say that the the Septuagint is not even worth considering that all you need is the King James Version. That's all you need. Oh, all you need is the Jewish Version. Oh, okay, thank you very much. So, they totally ignore these facts when they poo-poo the Septuagint and promote the King James only. Some four centuries after that era, Augustine remarks that the Greek-speaking Christians, for the most part, did not even know that there was any other word of God than the Septuagint. 
from the introduction to Potter's Standard Edition of the KJV, 1887, there appears this commentary about the Septuagint. The most remarkable translation of the Old Testament into Greek is called the Septuagint, which, if the, if the opinion of some eminent writers is to be credited, was made in the reign of Ptolemy Philadelphus about 270 years before the Christian era. At any rate, it is undoubtedly the most ancient that is now extant. And there's a rule in scholarship that the original, the most, the most ancient, must be assumed to be the best until proven otherwise. The five books of Moses were translated first in the time of Ptolemy Philadelphus, king of Egypt, the Greek king of Egypt, and others were added until the whole Old Testament was finished. And the version dates about 270 years before the birth of Christ. The transcendent value of this version may be seen from the extensive usage that it had attained in the, quote, he uses the word Jewish, but the Judahite synagogues, from the fact that our blessed Lord and the apostles habitually quoted from it, and also from the fact that it helped to determine the state of the Hebrew text at the time when the version was made. Besides, it establishes beyond all doubt the point that our Lord and his inspired apostles recognized the duty of rendering the word into the vulgar tongue of all people so that all men might in their own speech hear the wonderful things of the Lord by which he means Yahshua. All the authors of the New Testament appear to have written in the Greek language. But, yeah, but both Pastor Steve and uh, Pastor Martins uh, insist that uh, they actually wrote in Hebrew as well, and that the apostles may have written their uh, works in Hebrew and then translated them into the Greek which would actually be the best way to do it because if because uh, I I read German very well and I write it a little bit. It would be best for me if I were trying to translate my own work from English into German. It would be best for me to write it all in English So and then translate it into German. That, that way I'd be sure to get it right. Okay, and, and have an English source. So this is probably what they did. They probably wrote it in Hebrew and then translated it into Greek for common usage. Uh, it would be interesting if there is an original Hebrew gospel fragment somewhere. There may be. They, they, they may have discovered these things, but you know that uh, many, even Christian archaeologists assume the Jews, the Jewish perspective on these things. If such a document was found, it may, may be covered up. Continuing, that this tongue was already familiar to them as a vehicle to express God's inspired word is evident from their frequent use of the Greek translation, the Septuagint, in quoting the Old Testament and from the remarkable accordance of their style with the style of the ancient and precious version. Now, this is probably where we get the expression Hebrewism from, that there are Hebrewisms in the Greek. Where do these Hebrewisms come from? They come from the Hebrew. And sometimes sometimes an expression in Hebrew would translate well into the Greek, other times it wouldn't. So they preserved, they, they did their best to 
translate Hebrewisms into Greek. Continuing, from the above quotations, it can be seen that the Septuagint was the main source of Old Testament quotations made by Jesus and the Apostles. There may have been Hebrew texts available to them, but it was not the Masoretic text, because the Masoretic text was compiled from about 500 A.D. to 1000 A.D., and, of course, the oral tradition of the Talmudic rabbis was begun earlier in the days of Christ. With Herod and the Pharisees having had control of the temple since around 63 B.C., it would have been difficult for Christian Israelites or Judahites or anybody else, for that matter, to access the Hebrew scriptures, nor would they have been able to read them even if they had access to them. <laughs> like, <laughs> all of this proves beyond any doubt that the Septuagint was the received version of the Old Testament for the vast majority of Israelites in the apostolic era. Since the KJV OT is based on the Masoretic text, it behooves scholars to refer to the Septuagint to resolve any discrepancies contained within the KJV. In my opinion, where the two-source two texts disagree, I almost always prefer the Septuagint because that is the Old Testament that was quoted by the founders of Christianity. Let this be a lesson to the KJV-only people who give short shrift to the Septuagint. Pure line of descent of Noah. Regarding the biblical story of Noah and the flood. The Bible tells us that Noah was perfect in his generations, which means that his blood and genetics were not polluted by other seed. He was a pure-blooded Adamite, and so was Naamah, his wife. The Bible does not give us her name, but the Apocrypha do. I think the book of Jasher gives us her name. Naamah was his wife, his three sons, and their three wives. All of the other mixed blood in that territory was destroyed by God because of the sin of race mixing. That's exactly what the book of Jasher tells us. And that's exactly what Genesis 6 tells us. In essence, we teach that the deluge was global, that is the rainfall, but the flood was local. So the effects of all this deluge were different from territory to territory. In other words, there was indeed a worldwide downpour of unusual rain, but the effects were noticeably worse in the area of Ararat, today's eastern Turkey, and in the areas of north of there. And it could certainly be the Tarim Basin of Mongolia, because it is a big, a big bowl-shaped area. And the Chinese legend says that the floodwaters approached the source of the Yellow River, but did not overflow that source, which means it could not have gone over Mount Everest. Not hardly. Okay, so let me start this over. But the effects were noticeably worse in the area of Ararat, today's eastern Turkey and areas north of there, where Noah and the Sethites lived until the flood. They had also lived in Kashmir, in the mountains of India. And uh, I don't know if this uh, link is still uh, active. Uh, Mark Downey on the flood of Noah, an uh, article he wrote proving that the flood was not global. And since the book of Joshua tells us several times about the other side of the flood, hey, 
I'm on this side of the flood. There are people on the other side of the flood, which means that the flood was not global. It is clear that this flood was not worldwide. See Joshua 24, 2, 3, 14, and 15. It was local to the area. The Hebrew Eretz usually means land and rarely means planet, where these fornicating Adamites lived. Now, we really can't blame the Adamite women because they were being raped by beings with superhuman strength that the KJV and other translations use the word wives is... It's crazy. Do you think they went through a marriage ritual? I don't think so. This jives with the Chinese records of the flood, which state that the flood reached the foothills of the mountains, which are the source of the Yellow River, in the northern part of the Tarim Basin of Mongolia. Virtually all people around the globe have their own tradition of a flood story, including the Amerindians of both hemispheres, which means that they all survived to tell about it. How could all of these different people around the globe have indigenous accounts of the flood if they were all drowned by it? That makes no sense at all. Those who believe that Noah's ark housed two of every species on the earth would have to explain how Noah, for a period of five months, housed and fed elephants, rhinos, hippos, kangaroos, etc., etc., none of which were native to the hills of Ararat. Noah would have had to send out expeditions around the world to bring these animals to Ararat. Then after the flood, he would have to take them all back to their natural habitat again. It's crazy. Again, this shows the childishness of the teachings on the Old Testament by the Judeos and the Jews. The Jews say the same thing. Or if they went back to their natural habitat on their own, how did they get to their present locations if they had to disembark from the ark, cross continents and oceans, without leaving a migratory trace? And indeed, the archaeological record of Australia shows a continuous uh, fossil record without an interruption from Noah's flood, because it was primarily in in the northern hemisphere. The idea that the flood was global is a gross exaggeration of what the Bible really says. The point of all this history and prehistory is to demonstrate one thing. God forbids race mixing, and the inhabitants of this planet have repeatedly rebelled against this prohibition. Any legitimate translation of the Old Testament affirms God's hatred of race mixing. Indeed, the Adamites, Hebrews, and Israelites throughout both the Old and New Testaments are repeatedly commanded to remain separate and distinct from other peoples. Jesus said, I am not sent but unto the exiled sheep of the house of Israel. Our purpose is to reestablish God's law on earth. Part of this law is kind after kind. To the extent that earth's inhabitants have broken this law, the earth has been punished again and again as we are being punished today. And we are about to punish, be punished one last time for this crime against Yahweh's law. That punishment has a name. It is called the Judgment Day. Jesus said that just before the Judgment Day, it shall be as in the days of Noah. We are again experiencing an epidemic of race mixing, which is very displeasing to Yahweh. 
Why is he allow, allowing this to continue? People are constantly asking me that question. That's because he is selecting his remnant. Those of us who are not fooled, those of us who will not engage in this sin or all the other sins of the Judeo-Christian world, like homosexuality, lesbianism, lying, cheating, uh, (laughs) child molestation, like the Catholic Church's priests do. All of these things, as in the days of Noah. Here we are, folks. The usual objection to this biblical teaching of separateness is that the teachings of the Bible are for all men, quote-unquote all men. This is only partially true. God's law is, in fact, supposed to be practiced by all men. Every knee shall bow. However, the covenants are made exclusively by Yahweh with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Except for the covenant God made with Ishmael, the father of the Arabs, I think and the only covenant uh, that he made with them was that they would uh, be a very large number of people. All of the other biblical covenants are made exclusively with the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and the Israelites. And that means that we have a special mission to our contract with God. That's what the word covenant means. It means contract. And no one can be a party to the contract unless they're named in the contract. The problem is that we have miserably failed to perform our side of the bargain. Let's see, we only have about 10 minutes left, so uh, I, think I, can get the, I think I can get this section in. Today we are committing the same crime of race mixing again, and the earth is about to be punished and cleansed again. God guarantees that Jacob will be saved out of this, this time of trouble, but only the righteous overcomers will be selected to survive. This is God's law. Just as it happened in the days of Noah, right? There, they were both righteous and of pure descent through Seth. The judgment day, you have to be both. Race is not enough. You have to have race plus grace to rule with Yahshua in the kingdom just having white skin is not its not going to get you into the kingdom. You have to be righteous. This is God's law. The judgment day and the second coming will be the final cleansing. God will no longer tolerate any more race mixing. Those who promote it will be gathered and burned in the fire. In case you haven't noticed, the white race is being destroyed by the race mixers currently in power in virtually every country and every major institution. Why? Because Judeo-Christians and the churches have no objection to it. All races will be represented on the earth, but no mixed seed will ever be allowed again. From that point on, God's plan for the restoration of the earth will be in full operation. I know Fink disagrees, but Zechariah 14 clearly says that all those non-whites who do not make war against us Their genomes will continue, just as they were created in Genesis 1, separately from Adam, from Adamites, and that will be restored. Who would clean our toilets, anyway? (laughs) 
I'm quoting a Democratic lady who said that. Only white people, especially of the Judeo-Christian and liberal variety, have been dumb enough to swallow the current race-mixing propaganda, which includes white guilt, liberalism, multiculturalism, and other such nonsense. It is precisely white Christendom which has been the prophesied blessing to the earth, not the Jews. The Jews have been a curse wherever their usurious Talmudic deceivers have set foot. It is from the propaganda mills of the Jews that white guilt has been promoted. No other race except ours has ever been stupid enough to even contemplate racial suicide, as our people are doing it today. Our God, Yahweh, foretold the day when he would send a strong delusion in Israel in order to teach us a lesson regarding the end times. 2 Thessalonians 2, 8-12 tells us, quote, And then the lawless one, who is a Talmudic rabbi, will be revealed. And the Talmudic rabbi is, is being revealed today. Uh, I think it was Friday I reported on PewDiePie, who I guess he's the most popular, what is it, YouTube, YouTuber out there. He has uh, millions of followers. Expressed his intention to donate $50,000 to the ADL. Immediately, he received a flood of messages saying, don't you know the ADL are destroyers and deceivers? And, and you know, basically everybody who knows anything about the Jews responded to him, don't, you're an idiot. Don't you know who the Jews are, what the Jews are? And so he listened. And he said, okay, I'm not going to donate the money to the ADL. I'll find somebody else. He received such a mountain of feedback that he he apparently never knew that the Jews are evil, are an evil genome. But now he finds out, which tells us, folks, that our message is spreading. Obviously, not everybody understands it perfectly as we do, that the racial segregation commandments of the Bible through and through from Genesis to Revelation must be upheld but they are beginning to figure out who the Jews are and what they are. I wish David Duke would figure that out. The coming of the lawless one by the activity of Satan will be with all power. What is it that they do not control? And with pretending signs and wonders and with all wicked deception, for those who are to perish because they refuse to love the truth. Either you have a love for the truth or you do not. What is Paul telling us here? If you do not have a love for the truth, you will be flummoxed by the Jews and their shills, I might add, and so be saved. They refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So in other words, if you are not a truth lover and don't act according to your love of the truth, you will not be saved. As I said earlier, you have to be righteous. Your sins, have, you have to repent of your sins. You have to wake up, repent of your sins, 
having white skin will not get you into the kingdom. You have to be righteous too. I think it's John 5.29 that says, whites who, don't, who aren't righteous will burn just like tares. Therefore, God sends upon them strong delusion to make them believe what is false, liberalism, Judaism, multiculturalism, communism, so that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Hmm. All who have pleasure in unrighteousness. So, whether you limit the word all to Israel or not, it's clearly saying those who have not pleasure in righteousness will be condemned. So take your pick, folks. doesn't matter how you define the word all in this case. All of the unrighteous, the world over, will be destroyed. They're not getting into the kingdom. This strong delusion consists of two main aspects. One, the false belief that some other group, namely the Edomite and Khazar Jews, are, is Israel. This is the essence of the heresy called Judeo-Christianity, which seeks to destroy God's covenant people. And two, white guilt. So we, Christian Israel, have abandoned both the law and the prophets in favor of ancient Pharisaism and modern liberalism, otherwise known as Judeo-Christianity. Of course, both of these deceptive philosophies stem from the same source, Judaism. Strong delusion indeed. So folks, I don't think there's any way to argue against these precepts. The two seed lines are a reality of the Holy Scriptures. It's undeniable if you do the research. But this is precisely why the Jews, the rabbis, do not want any detailed study of two-seed-line theology. All they do is condemn it. But they will never teach it. Although even in their Talmud, they admit that Eve was seduced by some creature besides Adam. They admit that. But they will refuse to trace the bloodlines. Why? Because they are that bloodline. So you never provide evidence that points to yourself. Exculpatory evidence. They never provide that. Good reason why. All right, folks. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition. Stay tuned for Voice of Christian Israel. Coming up at noon Eastern Time, praise Yahweh, pass ammunition. See you next time.